0: I am Professor Edith Brown-Weiss of Georgetown University and pleased to give the last lecture in the mini-series on international environmental law. This lecture concerns liability, accountability, and compliance. The law of state responsibility determines when a state will be legally responsible for the breach of an international obligation and the remedies for such breach. States are responsible for breaches of an obligation for internationally wrongful acts. This leads to a suite of obligations to cease the breach if it continues to happen, to provide assurances and guarantees that it won't be repeated in appropriate cases, and to make reparation. Reparation has three elements. The first is to restore the situation created by the breach to the status quo ante. The second is to provide compensation to the extent that the situation cannot be restored. And the third available is to provide, quote, satisfaction, unquote, in cases in which there is harm, often of a moral character, that's not covered by restitution or compensation. In international environmental law, there is an important issue of liability for harm beyond national jurisdiction. We can explore the issues in the context of a hypothetical question. One state that causes significant transboundary pollution damage to another state. How does international law address this? What remedies? The focus in international environmental law has been on preventing serious harm. Liability for causing it is still underdeveloped. States have really shown an aversion to dealing with liability for the consequences of conduct. In 1972, when states drafted the Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment, they included a Principle 22 to address the issue. Principle 22 provides that states shall cooperate to develop further the international law regarding liability and compensation for the victims of pollution and other environmental damage caused by activities within the jurisdiction or control of such states to areas beyond their jurisdiction. That's 1972. Twenty years later, in 1992, the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development provides in Principle 13 that, quote, states shall develop national law regarding liability and compensation for the victims of pollution and other environmental damage. States shall cooperate in an expeditious and more determined manner to develop further international law regarding liability and compensation for adverse effects of environmental damage caused by activities within their jurisdiction or controlled to areas beyond their jurisdiction." We have no further general statement on liability by states in a subsequent declaration. Conceptually, there has been a problem with liability for transboundary environmental harm. The traditional approach is to view it as involving a breach of an international obligation which under state responsibility triggers the three forms of remedies outlined above. The definition of the obligation then becomes crucial for determining whether a breach occurs in a particular case. There has also been a second approach, which is to focus on liability for activities that are lawful in international law but cause transboundary harm. We then ask whether liability should be strict liability, negligence, or some other form. Some decades ago, the International Law Commission established a working group to consider the problem of liability liability for harm resulting from acts not prohibited by international law. The concept was that whenever a state caused transboundary harm, It should be liable for the harm without needing to find a breach of an international obligation. This working group did not result in a final product. Rather, it led to work on the topic of transboundary harm from hazardous activities. This, in turn, led to a draft entitled principles on the allocation of loss in the case of transboundary harm arising out of hazardous activities. Principle 1 of the draft, provided that the principles apply to transboundary damage caused by hazardous activities not prohibited by international law. Hazardous activity was defined as an activity which involves a risk of causing significant harm. The question arises, what is the scope of activities that would be covered? Are we concerned only about chemical plants, other industrial plants, and similar activities? Or does the document encompass transboundary pollution or other such chronic conditions? The well trail smelter arbitration between Canada and the United States addressed air pollution from the operation of a copper smelter. The International Law Commission's commentary on the draft principles noted only that the Commission decided not to include a list of activities. It noted that, quote, any such list of activities is likely to be underinclusive. And might quickly need review in the light of ever evolving technological developments. Unquote. Principle four of the draft principles provided that quote, each state should take all necessary measures to ensure that prompt and adequate compensation is available for victims of transboundary damage caused by hazardous activities located within its territory or otherwise under its jurisdiction or control. These measures should include the imposition of liability on the operator or, where appropriate, other person or entity. Such liability should not require proof of fault. Unquote from the draft principles. Note that the principles use the word should rather than shall. The United Nations General Assembly considered these draft principles, noted them, but did not adopt them. In discussing liability, we note that it often has two purposes that may be at odds with each other. The first is to provide compensation to the victims. And the second is to deter such behavior in the future, to prevent harm. The difficulty is that the amounts of compensation needed for each purpose likely differ. The compensation of victims may or may not deter the polluting behavior in the future, because the costs of controlling the pollution or hazardous actions may exceed the costs of compensating the victims, especially if it is not clear that the victims in fact, be compensated. On the other hand, it could be the opposite. It may be cheaper for a plant to control the pollution or take measures uh, to prevent an accident. There are examples of where it is cheaper for a state to assist another state to install the pollution control equipment than to continue to suffer transboundary harm. The agreement on the Rhine River, by which downstream states contributed to controlling pollution from the French potash mines in the Alsace region, illustrates this. When the victim contributes to paying for the polluter to stop polluting, it is sometimes referred to as the victim pays principle. It may make economic sense for the downstream uh, states. And now we turn to the question of compensation for environmental harm. In international environmental law there are very difficult problems in compensating for natural resource damage, as there are also in domestic environmental law. At least four methods conceptually exist for assessing natural resource damage. First. Restoration and replacement costs. Second, market valuation of the resources. Third, what's referred to as behavior use valuation. And fourth, contingent valuation. Now, restoration and replacement costs for natural resources damage may be able to be monetized, but it's not always possible to restore the environment or to replace natural resources that are damaged. Market valuation can be carried out for determining the price of lost fisheries, for example, or the decrease in land value, but it is limited in what it can be applied to. Behavior value focuses, for example, on the cost to use a resource such as travel, to a national park. And contingent valuation asks people what monetary value they place on a resource, such as clean air, clean water. All of these four methods of compensating for natural resource damage are difficult, and they're extremely difficult, as applied to the problem of valuing ecosystems. So, let's look at ecosystems. For example, forests protect against the loss of soils, which in turn protects against the siltation of damages, because uh, the loss of soils can, in fact, cause siltation of dams. Forests harbor the wildlife, which in itself is valuable. They are also important buffers for climate. All of these values are part of the value of natural resource ecosystems. How do we quantify these values? How do we translate them into monetary amounts for compensation? It's difficult to do so, which is partly why the focus on international environmental law has always been on preventing serious harm rather than liability. Restoration is simply sometimes, indeed often, not viable. Liability is especially challenging in the context of harm to the global commons or other commons because in international law a state traditionally must suffer a particular injury to seek an international remedy. Thus, in the case of a massive oil leak near Antarctica, or on the high seas, which state could intervene and seek a remedy? I would argue that when there is significant environmental injury to the international community, international law should permit all states to seek a remedy for violations of legal obligations designed to protect the environment of the world's common, or shared, spaces. This issue also arises now in the context of climate change. Here, states have decided that those states contributing to global warming should provide compensation to those harmed by it, and hence the Warsaw mechanism on liability. The cutting-edge developments are happening in national courts, where groups have successfully sued to hold a state responsible for its obligation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to take other steps to address climate change. Judicial decisions at the national level are impressive, important, and reflect a growing trend to hold states and private actors, such as fossil fuel companies, accountable for contributing to climate change. Before concluding, though, our discussion of liability, I want to turn to a key source of international environmental law, namely international agreements, and ask what international agreements are there relevant to liability for environmental harm? These are rare. The most recent example relates to the Convention on Biological Diversity and its Cartagena Protocol on Living Modified Organisms. The 2010 Nagoya-Kuala Lumpur Supplementary Protocol Concerning Liability and Redress to the Cartagena Protocol went into effect in 2018. 49 states are party to the protocol today. It is historic in providing rules and procedures for liability and redress relating to damage from intentional, unintentional, and and illegal transboundary movements of living modified organisms, or LMOs. It requires a causal link between the damage and the LMO in question. Under the supplementary protocol, states are responsible for ensuring that operators inform their competent authority, evaluate the damage, and take appropriate response measures. The protocol explicitly states that it does not affect the rights and obligations of states under international law for internationally wrongful acts. States have also tried to address the liability issue in the context of the Basel Convention on transboundary movement of hazardous wastes and their disposal. The 1999 proposed protocol on liability and compensation for damage caused by such movement, however, has never gone into effect. And that has been more than 20 years. There are two other, um, potentially uh, relevant, uh, agreements. The first is the 1971 Convention on International Liability for Damage from Space Objects, which 98 states have ratified. The convention has only been invoked once in 1978, when a nuclear-powered then-Soviet satellite crashed into Canada Canada and the then Soviet Union negotiated compensation. And the second series of agreements relate to civil liability for transborder nuclear damage. And there are two primary agreements here the Paris Convention on Civil Liability in the Field of Nuclear Energy, 1969 and the Vienna Convention on Civil Liability for Nuclear Damage of 1962. In this responsibility is contribu- is attributed to the operator of the plant and involves the plant operator for any damage to people and to property caused by nuclear activities. Jurisdiction is permitted either in the court of the operator, court of the state of the operator or of those affected. The protocol that amends the Convention on Civil Liability in the field of nuclear damage, provides for compensation for intangible damage to persons and property, for the course of restoring the environment, and for adopting precautionary measures to minimize damage. Except for the above examples in international environmental law, the efforts to develop liability regimes for environmental damage have not progressed significantly. We may conclude that the efforts to develop the law regarding liability are an inadequate means of securing compliance with international environmental law. We therefore explore other means of accountability and of securing compliance with international environmental law. Before this, we turn briefly to private remedies for transboundary environmental harm. In our hypothetical problem, where pollution originates in one state that causes significant harm to those outside the state, international law provides that the originating states must provide the injured party outside the state or exposed to the risk of such injury access to the same judicial or administrative remedies as to persons within its its state, non-discrimination. This principle of non-discrimination applies here, both with regard to the substantive environmental standards to be applied and the measures of compensation. The United Nations Convention on International Watercourses is explicit on this point in its Article 32 entitled non-discrimination. Quote, "A watercourse state shall not discriminate on the basis of nationality or residence or place where the injury occurred in granting to such persons in accordance with its legal system access to judicial or other procedures or a right to claim compensation or other relief in respect of significant harm" caused by such activities carried on in its territory. This approach is appropriate. In practice, it can be difficult. To return to our hypothetical, there may be difficult issues about jurisdiction for cases brought by those injured in the state where the polluting activity takes place rather than in the place of injury, or there may be choice of law issues as to whose law applies. The standards of liability for environmental damage may be different. Thus while private remedies should always be considered, they may in specific cases in practice not be available. We turn then to criminal responsibility for environmental harm. Sometimes international agreements and legal instruments attach penal consequences to conduct that results in significant harm to natural resources. States have often enacted legislation pursuant to international agreements that makes it a crime under the domestic law to cause harm to internationally shared resources. The international agreements may call for states to criminalize conduct under their national laws and to provide for punishing those parties found guilty. For example, the Beijing Amendment to the Montreal Protocol on chemicals that deplete the ozone layer calls for states to combat the illegal trade in controlled chemicals, to make such trade illegal and criminal. Similarly, states have criminalized violations of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. States are now discussing a possible protocol to the UN Convention on Transnational Crime, which would address the illegal trade in wildlife. The Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Waste requires an Article 4 that the parties consider that illegal traffic and hazardous wastes and other wastes is criminal. It provides each party shall take appropriate legal, administrative, and other measures to implement and enforce the provisions of this convention, including measures to prevent and punish conduct in contravention of the convention. Moreover, an increasing number of states have enacted national legislation that provides for criminal punishment of environmental offenses. But we have to distinguish between making individuals criminally liable in domestic law and holding states criminally responsible. The Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court provides the following in Article 8. In a definition of war crimes, it says, "...intentionally launching an attack, in the knowledge that such attack will cause incidental loss of life, or injury to civilians, or damage to civilian objects, or widespread long-term and severe damage to the nat- natural environment." Before the Rome Statute was drafted, states considered including massive damage to the environment, Uh, as a war crime. In 1973, Professor Richard Falk proposed a convention on ecocide. In the ensuing decades, states have discussed defining certain environmental damage as a crime against humanity. The late Polly Higgins led a non-governmental effort to draft a law against ecocide to be used at the national level. The crime of ecocide, quote, prohibits damage, destruction, and loss of ecosystems over a certain size, duration, or impact, unquote. Her group submitted to the International Law Commission a proposal to add ecocide as the fifth crime under Article 5 of the Rhone Statute of the International Criminal Court. The issue of ecocide has also been raised at the United Nations. And in the last few years, there has been new momentum, to draft a law of ecocide, A distinguished group of international experts has been producing a draft legal instrument. Finally, we return to the broad question of how do we get compliance with international environmental law so that we don't even have to reach all of these enforcement issues. And I suggest that this is an essential avenue to pursue. This avenue differs from a focus on enforcement or liability for damage because it looks at how we get states to comply with their obligations so that we do not have to turn to liability for damages and enforcement actions for violations of agreements. More than a decade ago, The United Nations Environment Program adopted guidelines for compliance with international environmental agreements and guidelines for the enforcement of national environmental uh, law. So then let's look inside the issues of compliance. As a first step, it is useful to distinguish between implementation, compliance, force enforcement and effectiveness. Implementation refers to measures that states take to make international agreements effective in their domestic law. Some agreements are self-executing because they do not require national legislation to become effective. Many international agreements do require national legislation or regulations. Compliance, though, goes beyond implementation. It refers to whether states, in fact, adhere to the provisions of the agreement and to the implementing measures that they have instituted domestically. Enforcement then becomes part of the process of compliance. Compliance itself has several dimensions. Treaties contain specific obligations, some of which are procedural, such as an annual requirement for states to report on their activities, which is very common in international environmental agreements, and others are substantive, such as the obligation to control certain polluting activities or pollutant emissions, or to protect natural resources, or to limit trade in endangered species. In addition, treaties often place specific obligations in a broad normative framework in the preamble, which we consider... we can consider as the spirit of the agreement. We can separately assess the extent to which there is compliance with the procedural obligations and with the substantive obligations there may be compliance with procedural obligations and not with substantive obligations or even compliance with substantive obligations and not with procedural. In practice, compliance with procedural obligations may not always correspond with compliance with substantive obligations. As I said, a state could comply with the substantive obligations and not with a procedural obligation or by Versa. Finally, we can distinguish effectiveness from compliance. The issue is whether the agreement is effective in achieving its objectives. And these objectives may be expressed in the preamble to the agreement. Or more broadly, is it effective in addressing the problems that led to the negotiation of the agreement. And this may relate to the design and coverage of the agreement. Research indicates that the intent and capacity of a country to comply with an international agreement are the two critical factors affecting compliance. The intent to comply may range somewhere between weak or even no intention to comply to a very strong intention to comply. Sometimes this is a reflection of priorities. These may shift over time. The capacity of a country to comply may range from weak or very weak to very strong. This may also change over time. Thus, a country's intent and its capacity to comply with an international agreement may well change over time in response to various developments. In large countries, the national government may intend to comply, but some parts of the country, especially on the periphery, may have weaker intent or may lack the capacity to comply. Or one part of the national government may want to comply, while another may not give it priority. Thus, it is important to consider both intent and capacity to comply when we discuss compliance with international environmental agreements. Now then, what are strategies to encourage compliance with international agreements. And I think these may be grouped into three categories. The first is coercive measures, which is what international lawyers normally consider. Coercive measures in the form of sanctions, penalties, and withdrawal of membership privileges. Yet these have been used least in international environmental law. The other two categories are, first, transparency or sunshine methods, such as reporting, monitoring, on-site visits, access to informational, perhaps regional meetings of officials responsible in their domestic country... in their domestic environments, non-governmental organization participation, etc. And the second, is positive incentives to comply, to enable countries to comply, such as special funds for financial assistance, technical assistance, capacity-building programs, or access to technology. To be sure, these strategies may be available for all international agreements, because the appropriate mix for a specific country depends upon the country's capacity to comply and its intent to comply. As I said, we often think of sanctions as essential for complying with international agreements. But in international environmental law, they have been a last resort and rarely used. If a country lacks the capacity to comply, it's important to provide the incentives and to make available transparency or sunshine methods to assist with ensuring uh, compliance. Now, this has provision... this has implications for the provisions in international environmental agreements dealing with noncompliance or violations of the agreement. In international environmental agreements, states have established special procedures to review implementation and compliance. For example, at the 1990 meeting of parties to the Montreal Protocol, states set up an implementation committee, which could address reasons for for noncompliance and fashion measures accordingly. States parties to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution Convention have also established an Implementation Committee. And the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate has established a committee to consider issues of compliance. The Implementation Committee, for example, of the Montreal Protocol, is important because such a committee can address the issues of why a state is not complying and enhance the state's ability to comply. In practice, such committees have operated as a substitute to invoking formal dispute settlement procedures when an alleged violation or noncompliance of the agreement takes place. For example, the Vienna Convention Framework Convention on the Stratospheric Ozone Layer contains an article with elaborate dispute settlement provisions, but states under the Montreal Protocol have never used it although they could. In my view, dispute settlement provisions are still important and have value as a backup should the other things fail. Increasingly, we must also address issues of compliance with non-binding legal instruments, with soft law. Research has indicated that the same set of factors that affect compliance with international agreements affect compliance with those that are non-binding. Measures that provide for states to be accountable to each other in transparent ways, such as reporting at regular meetings, have been shown to be effective in shaping the intent to comply. Much of the research on compliance applies to actors other than states and certainly to areas beyond international environmental law. It's important to remember that compliance can change over time and that a mix of strategies can be useful in helping states to comply or in ensuring that they remain motivated uh, to do so. In conclusion, accountability is essential in international law. We need to go beyond liability in seeking to hold states accountable for complying with international obligations. Thank you very much.